On this week's episode of I Believe Now What, we are going over 10 characteristics of a good church. Now, as always, this is not an exhaustive list. There are things that make a good church that I maybe not mention on here, but essentially what I want this to be is kind of a tool or a building block that you can use if you're deciding whether or not your church is a good church, or even if you are currently looking for a church and you want something to try to measure that church against to see if they are a good church. That is the point of this. So hopefully this helps and welcome to this week's episode. Hello everybody. My name's Tim Perko and you're listening to I Believe. Now what? Welcome back to another episode of I Believe Now What? First off, I want to apologize. I know we did not have an episode last week. Uh, That was because just with the move that we're about to do, if I never told you all that, we are moving here soon to another state. That's the life of the military. And on top of that, I have been intermittently preaching at a church that does not have a pastor. And I've been doing so almost uh, every single Sunday. So with all that being done, you know, I have to prepare for the sermon. And I also work a full-time job being in the military. Uh, So something had to get put on the back burner. And sadly, that was the podcast. So with all that being said, hopefully you will forgive me, but we are back this week and we are, if you've heard the intro, talking about 10 characteristics of a good church. Now, I want you to take notice. Well, number one, if it sounds a little different in here, it's because I'm recording in a different room. That's because, like I said, we are moving and in the process of packing everything up and moving things around. So if you do hear a little bit of an echo, please uh, forgive me of that. Uh, once once we get settled in in our new place, we will have a much better place to record. Uh, but back to the characteristics of a good church. All right, so number one, as I said in the intro, there, there are so many more than just 10, but I wanted to keep this list kind of based on a type of foundation. My hope is in this episode that if you are looking for a brand new church, or maybe you have some questions about your church and you want something to kind of measure them up against. Well, number one, you should be measuring your church up against the Bible. But that's essentially what this list is, just 10 characteristics that are formulated out of the Bible. And not only that, from my years of experience of constantly having to move and visiting different churches all the time, because that's That is the military life. You're moving from place to place to place, and you're always having to find a new church, and that just doesn't take, you know, a one-week thing and done. You have to go there. You have to talk to the pastoral leadership. You need to uh, go to a few different services, because sadly, in today's world, just sitting down and reading a church's statement of faith is no longer good enough. Why? Because sadly, many of church's statements of faith are very vague, and I can do a whole nother episode On that, essentially, when you are looking for a new church, it's a good practice, at least I've found, to go to a few services, check that church out. Then once you've established that church, it does seem like they're doctrinally sound, they got a good solid foundation, then talk to the pastoral staff, ask to talk to the pastor, ask to talk to one of the associate pastors or the elders, and then you can talk to them about different maybe doctrinal topics that you have questions about. You know, what is your stance on baptism? What is your stance on the doctrines of grace? What is your stance on spiritual gifts or whatever the case may be? So that way you can see if this church lines up biblically with how you read and view the Bible. Now, keep in mind, you will never find the perfect church as in the church building, ever. Uh, that's not going to happen until we are completely with Christ and we are in heaven together. 
But, uh, you know, a famous pastor once said, if you end up finding the perfect church, leave because you're going to ruin it. In other words, he was kind of joking around saying there is not, there's no such thing as the 100% perfect church. There's always going to be places to improve upon. There's always going to be something that you may disagree with at that church. But essentially, uh, what I'm doing with this list of 10 here is if your church lines up with most of these, then you can feel pretty confident that you're in a solid foundation church. Now, obviously, I, once again, couldn't cover everything, so you got to have a lot in prayer and personal discernment. But if your church is following these 10 guidelines, then I'd probably say you are pretty safe. Now, if they do not follow these guidelines, what I don't want you to do is get up and leave that church. But what I would rather you do is to go talk to the pastoral staff, talk to them about this, be like, hey, you know what? I noticed we weren't doing so great in this area, or we don't do anything in this area. And then maybe it gets brought to their attention and changes get made. You know, changes happen by people talking, not just by people leaving. So that is one of the hopes. Now, obviously, if your church is at that point where it's too far gone, uh, then maybe you do need to shake the dust off your feet and go ahead and move to a different church, but I always like to leave that as a last resort. I'm not a huge fan in church hopping, says the person who hops churches all the time. But <laughs> once again, but y'all know me, I'm in the military. I, I can't help that. That's not my fault. But anyways, enough of me blabbing on about it. Let's get into the list. All right. So number one is going to be expository preaching. In other words, is the pastor preaching God's word and not just whatever topic he wants to talk about that week. If you've ever, and I mentioned this book last week, if you ever read Nine Marks of a Healthy Church by Mark Dever, this is the very first mark that he actually comes up with and talks about. And I love what he said on it because he said, if a church is essentially doing this expository preaching, then everything else is really going to fall in line because that means they take serious concern for the word. Now you might be asking yourself, what is expository preaching? Well, essentially, it is going through the Bible in context. So instead of just a topical sermon like we talked about in the last two episodes, where you are randomly picking a topic and then just cherry picking verses, which can the verses can get taken out of context very easily that way. Instead of doing that and just picking a topic, what the pastor is doing is he is going through the word. For an example, the church that I am uh, part-time pastoring at right now I am going through the book of Romans, specifically Romans chapter 8, and we are breaking down Romans chapter 8 verse by verse, all the way from verse 1 all the way to the very last verse. We're not going to skip any verses. We're going to go over each one, and we're going to talk about it, and there's an overall message with every single chunk, so it's not like turning into a Bible study because expository preaching can turn into that Bible study mentality very easily. I do understand that, but essentially... Uh, there is a topic that you can pull from each one of those sections. I mean, that's part of being a pastor's job is finding the message inside, but yet keeping it in context with the verse, knowing what the original message meant to the people that it was written to and keeping that in context so we don't pull anything out of context. This all happens when a pastor is practicing a good exegetical process and he's using the proper hermeneutics to draw that message out. Uh, if you don't know what exegetical means, it's another way of saying you are pulling from Scripture. You're not inserting yourself 
into scripture. You're not inserting your own ideas into scripture, but rather you're pulling the ideas out of the scripture. I also said hermeneutical. That's another big word. Hermeneutics is another way of saying how to take what it meant then and apply it to your everyday life now. I mean, I can go a lot deeper in that, but that's a very basic explanation. So number one, as I said, expository preaching. This is so key because if you're properly going through the Bible, then your church is going to hit up on every other topic that it needs uh, through these 10 characteristics that we're going through. So preaching the Bible's word. Now, there's nothing wrong, and just as I said in the last two episodes, there's nothing wrong with a topical sermon every now and again because topics do get brought up and we need to talk about it. But essentially, if you do that topical style preaching You're only conforming the congregation to the image of the pastor and what he wants to talk about rather than what the Word of God is talking about. I'll tell you what, me as a part-time pastor, and I'm going through and I'm building a message, I learn so much because I hold myself to that scripture. Instead of saying, I'm going to talk about, you know... um, let's say once saved, always saved or something like that. And I go through and I like to call that perseverance of the saints, by the way, I rarely use once saved, always saved. But anyways, continuing on, if I were going to preach about that, it's very easy for me to just flip open, do a word search and start pulling verses and cherry picking verses out that sound like it has something to do with that topic. When if you put it in context, it may have nothing to do with it at all. Now, once again, I am a proponent of once saved, always saved, so I'm not dogging on that. But it's very easy to do that. So you can make the Bible say essentially almost whatever you want it to say when you're pulling scriptures out of context. But if you're reading the verses that come before, that come after, what was the chapter about? Who was it written to? Why was it written? That's when we get into expository style preaching. And the amount of things that I discover when I go through the Word, I may have an idea after reading the passage of what I want to preach on, but then as I'm studying these passages in a good exegetical way and I'm applying hermeneutics, I am learning so much more than what I originally intended to talk about. And the whole entire sermon can possibly change from that point because that's God speaking to you through the scriptures. So number one, as I said, expository preaching. Number two, characteristic of a good church, number two, and that is going to be prayer. I don't even have to say much besides the entire Bible is full of examples of how powerful prayer is and how needed prayer is. The Apostle Paul said, pray without ceasing. Prayer needs to be front and center in a church, not only in the leadership, but in the congregation itself. This can come in the form of, does your church have prayer meetings? I know a good church that I attended while I was down here in southwest Louisiana, they would hold prayer for the uh, every single Sunday before the service to pray over the service. Uh, before, uh, if there's big events going on, maybe an election or something like that, they would hold prayer services beforehand. Whenever a huge hurricane was coming in, they would hold prayer before that because the power of prayer is so needed in our everyday life. Is your church built on a foundation of prayer? That is a mark of a good church. All right, number three. And by the way, there is no real particular order to this. Uh, The only one I purposely put at number one was expository preaching, just because, as I said, if you do that right, everything else kind of follows. But anyways, I just wanted to throw that out there. Number three, all right? So number three is going to be biblical church membership. 
All right, what is that? Now, I know not every church is, especially in <clears throat> some non-denominational churches, uh, they don't have a membership program. And I'm not saying that, no, I am saying it. <laughs> a membership program is actually biblical. If you look in the book of Acts, they knew who was saved and they kind of kept a, it seemed as if they kept a record of that. Now, this is important to have a biblical membership because it shows that a church cares for its members. You can look to Hebrews chapter 10, Ephesians chapter 4. There is context for this. And like I said, all throughout the book of Acts, there is context for a church membership. And the reason why I say this, there was a church that I once attended and I they did not have a membership program when I was talking to the pastoral staff about it. I asked them, you know, why don't we have a membership? And they said, well, anybody who walks through that door is a member. Now me, as someone who is in training right now, going through school to be a full-time pastor, that brings up a giant red light to me. Why? Because the Bible says that a pastor needs to watch out for the souls of those who he's pastoring, and that a pastor is going to be held accountable for everything that they teach to their congregation. If that's going to be the case, I want to know who my sheep are. Now, I am not saying that you close your doors off and it's a members-only church, because how else then is your church going to continue to grow? But as a church, it is a good thing to have a membership program. So you as a pastor, so your pastor knows who directly is are, are his sheep and who is he responsible for pastoring. Now, obviously, different churches have different ways of going about this. Some have you take membership classes. Some say just, you know, sign this paper saying you affirm everything. And some it's much more or less formal and just saying you want to attend here, that's fine, be a member. But essentially what membership does, it's a level of accountability, number one, for the pastor to know who his sheep is. And number two, it's accountability for the members of the church, knowing that they can be there for each other, uplift each other. Obviously, we do the same thing for strangers, but when it's somebody who is a professing Christian and we know they are and in their walk and they're a member of that church, we're more apt to be able to help them out when we say we see them stumbling in something. Or maybe we see that they have a time of need and we want to help them out because we do as Christians need to help each other out. We help the lost, but we also need to help each other out. And you can see so many great examples of this throughout the Bible. All right, so that's enough on number three, biblical church membership. Let's go on to number four. And this is a very big one. This is a huge red flag if this is not going right. Number four is, do the members have good fruit? Or in other words, are, do the members actually emulate Christians? Are they acting the way that Christians should act? If you are a part of a church and there is no sign of repentance throughout most of the membership and they're off going to nightclubs, getting drunk, they're doing drugs, sleeping around, having multiple divorces, cheating on their spouses, whatever sin you can think of, and that's running rampant throughout that church, that shows the church is not bearing good fruit, and that goes back to whether or not those people are truly saved and really is the pastor doing what they're supposed to be doing? Are they preaching the word the way that it should be taught? Are they bringing up these topics we go through? Once again, there is no such thing as a perfect church. And there are going to be people inside the church who sin. But the difference is, is who's keeping accountability of those people? Who's bringing it up to those people? And are those people responding in grace uh, to those claims when, when sin gets pointed out? And this has something to do on our next topic. 
uh, but we're not there quite yet. But members need to have good fruit. Is the church having good fruit? This is just a huge sign. Sadly, uh, you can look at many different churches that are very popular today where people claim to be Christians. Uh, I picked on them a lot the last two episodes. I'm going to keep going just because they're such a well-known example. But you look at places like Hillsong Church, especially the one over there in New York. That was the celebrity church. You had all these celebrities going to this church, saying that they are Christian, acting like a Christian on Sunday, but yet they release these psalms or they're constantly cursing and swearing left and right. They're not exhibiting actions that a Christian would, uh, would, would be going, but yet they're claiming they're a part of this church. That's kind of ruining that church's image, and it's ruining the purity of the church. Now, obviously, you can't fully ruin the purity of the real church because they've been washed by the blood in Christ, but what you're doing is you're just giving people another excuse to go ahead and say, look at all these hypocrites in this church. Uh, they, they, they don't believe the Bible. They don't practice what they preach. This is all a bunch of garbage, and it's a bad testimony. So number four, as I said, do the members have good fruit? Number five, biblical church discipline. All right, now I actually did an entire episode based off of church discipline and how important that is in the church. And if you haven't heard it and you want to know more about it, I highly suggest you go watch that episode. But essentially, church discipline are is the actions that a church takes against members inside its church that are living in ongoing sin or unrepentant sin even. You know, does the church lovingly and patiently practice a type of church discipline? Number one, as I always say, church discipline's number one goal is to bring whoever is committing those sins into repentance and back into fellowship with the congregation. It's not to kick them out or anything like that. There's a process that Jesus talked about, I believe it was Matthew chapter 19, where he goes over, this is how you properly execute church discipline. And it all starts with the members. You, you see your brother sinning, you see your brother and sister sinning, then you go to them in private and you talk to them about it. And if they refuse to listen, then you got to bring it up to the next level and bring a few witnesses in. But if they repent of it right away, then you leave it alone. You don't bring it back up. They repent of it, it's done deal. But if they don't listen, then you bring some witnesses along. And if those witnesses uh, can't, doesn't help and they still continue wanting to live their life of sin or they don't see the error of their ways, then you got to bring it up to the church. And then the church gets involved and it could be talking with them, counseling, maybe some type of reprimand, especially if they're in leadership, they get removed from that leadership position. But if they're still at the end of the day, not repenting of that sin and they are not uh, admitting that their fault and trying to seek help for this, then essentially, and when I say seek help, I mean seeking help within the church. The church has a right to govern these matters. The Apostle Paul talked about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. But essentially, the church has to take that last step resort of kicking them out of the church. Sadly, that is the end, um, well, not the end result, but that is the last step taken in trying to bring that person into repentance. And yes, even by kicking them out, the goal is still bringing that person into repentance and hopefully back into the church and into fellowship. But if not, Jesus was very clear that we are to have nothing to do with them and treat them as an outsider. And I can't reiterate enough. The number one goal of that is not to say, get out of my church, you're gone. 
but it's to bring them back into repentance and fellowship. See, the thing is, is when they leave the protection of the church and they leave the fellowship of all these people that they've been worshiping on, hopefully that they reflect on the error of their ways and they are outside while they're outside of that protection that because God does place protection around that body of assembled believers. And when they're outside of that protection, hopefully that they learn through God and the Holy Spirit convicting and chasing them that they need to come back to repentance. And if sadly they don't, then maybe the possibility is there. And I will never openly judge someone for salvation because that's not my spot. But maybe, just maybe, that person may not truly be saved. I mean, I was a part of a church, sadly, this is kind of the tip of the iceberg that made me have to leave. The divorce was running very rampant throughout this church. Uh, nothing was being done about it. There was no sermon preached on it. Nothing was being talked about, and people were not being properly disciplined the way that Jesus said that they should be disciplined. And that had to result in me uh, having to leave that church. And I hate it when that happens because, once again, I am not a fan of church hopping. But there are times that we have to take a stand on what the Bible says and stick to our convictions because we will, as individuals, have to give an account for that one day. All right, so church discipline, that was number five. Now we're moving on to number six, and this is really important. Honestly, I would probably put this up as number two if we were going to put this in precedence, but biblical discipleship and growth. Eh, maybe three, depends. Prayer, I think prayer would trump this, but this comes, this is a very close third, but biblical discipleship and growth in your church. Now, I'm not talking growth as in numbers growth. I'm talking growth as in growth in the Christian, in the person, in the believer. And what is discipleship? Discipleship is something I talked about in a sermon last week. Uh, discipleship are the actions that we as believers take for people who are already professing believers, and we're helping disciple them through this, especially when it comes to new converts. Uh, I don't think I shared it on this podcast before, but in my sermon last week, I was doing study on discipleship, and I came across Billy Graham, and Billy Graham said one of his regrets, if you don't know who Billy Graham is, he was probably one of the greatest evangelists of our time, but even Billy Graham said that one of his regrets was that he estimated only about 25% of the people that came forward at his huge, huge evangelism events were actually actually held to the faith and became prof real professing believers. So all those people, he only estimated 25% of them actually meant it. And a study was later done in the late two, in the early 2000s, sorry, uh, where they found out only three to six percent of those people who came forward actually continued in a church community. That's pretty eye-opening. Only three to six percent. And I don't put the blame essentially on Billy Graham. He was an evangelist working in his call, doing his calling. What I put the blame on are the churches who bring those people in. And, and then when they go up and they do this confession and they, you know, say that they believe in Christ and no discipleship follows after that, well, what do you think is going to happen? Of course, they're going to fall away. And this is just a possibility here, but I know, take, take me for example, I've given uh, little bits and pieces of my testimony, but essentially I was one of those people who went up at an altar call and professed a belief in Christ, and I wasn't truly understanding what I was doing. I wasn't truly repentant. 
Uh, and especially when I was a teenager, I used to go to these youth revivals from youth groups because I was not living like a Christian. And I would go to these youth revivals and I'd be in tears. The music's playing. It's an emotional event. I'm like, oh, I rededicate my life to the Lord. And then I'm back in school, you know, in high school. And a week later, there is absolutely no difference in my life whatsoever. What was I missing? I was missing that discipleship. You know, oftentimes, true conversion might not even happen at that event, but instead through the discipleship when they actually learn more. And I'm, this is a case-by-case basis. I'm not saying this is the be-all, say-all. Uh, I, I made a video about this on TikTok, and I, I, I received a lot of hate about it because they, I was messing with people's altar calls. Because if you didn't know, I'm not personally an altar call fan. I believe more false professions are made from altar calls than true professions. Um, but that's an opinion. That's not necessarily marked in the Bible. Why? Because the Bible does not talk about altar calls. Altar calls was something that was invented around the 1800s by this Presbyterian pastor who wanted to get away from the style that he was preaching. And so he started doing altar calls and playing music and having people come down and laying hands on them and all this type of stuff. Anyways, that's going to get into a whole nother side rant. But essentially, discipleship needs to happen. So what does good discipleship look like? Well, let's just say you're at a, an, a your church has an event, and they uh, ask after the message, "Has anybody, you know, does anybody believe the words of what we're saying? Has anybody not made a profession in Christ before?" And they want to, you know, and s- some people come down. There may be, you know, they were attending the church, but they weren't members. They come down, they profess that belief in Christ. What true discipleship would be after that? would be taking that person in then and talking to them, being like, all right, so check this out. And you pretty much hook them up with the accountability partner or something of that nature. You are pretty much helping them in their walk. This is a big reason why Jesus spent most of his time with 12 people discipling them instead of a giant mass of thousands. He spent his time with 12 people. And then what did those 12 people do? They went out and they had disciples of their own that learned underneath them. And it just keeps continuing and continuing and continuing. Even me, as someone who is training to be a pastor, and uh, I I have that, that calling in my life, I will never get to a point in my life where I don't need to be discipled. I am always going to need somebody to disciple me. And such is the case with every single Christian. I look back to... Uh, people like John MacArthur, you know, he's old. Let's just face it, he's old. He's in his 80s. Um, and But he admits that he still needs to get discipled. He gets discipled by the elders of his church. He had people like R.C. Sproul before he passed away who was discipling him. Uh, all these different factors go into it. But essentially, discipleship is something that we're always going to need in our Christian walk of life, and it needs to be happening in your church. If your church does not have some sort of discipleship program, this is something that you as a person can bring up to the leadership in your church. Maybe you can be that change and start this program up, but essentially every single Christian needs a disciple, especially those, or every single Christian needs to be discipled, sorry, let me correct that, Um, and especially newer Christians who are just professing the faith, they need to be discipled, and churches should have a good discipleship program program in a way. I hate that word program, but can't think of a better word at least right now. Uh, All right, moving on. Number seven, missions. And those are, uh, when I say missions, I'm talking about local missions and foreign missions. I talked about a little bit in the episode last week, but missions are so important in the church. One, for the local community, uh, by just doing different things throughout the community, whether it be handing out tracts 
or fixing someone's roof when their roof caves in or little things like that that you can do in the community to spread the gospel, to spread the love of Christ, to do what Christians are supposed to be doing. And number two, like I said, foreign missions. Foreign missions are so important because this is essentially the great commission that Jesus gave. We are to go out into the world and preach the gospel and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Make disciples of them. Actually, that goes back to discipleship that we were talking about. But this is what foreign missions does. And if your church is not, like, let's say, raising their own missionaries, because I know not every, the church that I'm pastoring at right now, uh, they, they're a very small congregation. They probably don't have the money to support sending someone to school to be a missionary and getting the proper training and then sending them out and supporting them. But in those cases, if you can't do that, then you can go ahead and support other mission groups, you know, Heart Cry Missionary Society or some other type of good Bible-based missionary society that your church can be supporting in these foreign missions, going out, taking the gospel to areas of the world that maybe don't have it or even sadly uh, are persecuted for it. Missions, local and foreign, are key in a church. All right, number eight, biblical church leadership, all right? This is, is the church being led by godly, qualified men? These are men who are called to be a leader in the church because sadly, a lot of people believe that anybody can be a leader in the church, but if you go through and read 1 Timothy chapter 3 or Titus chapter 1, it specifically talks about what the qualifications for a church leader are. Is your church going through this? And I actually did an entire episode on this earlier. You can go back and look at it. Uh, the qualifications of a good pastor, the characteristics of a good pastor. Uh, does your church have that structure? Um, and do they look to Scripture for that structure? Because Scripture is very key on how the church is supposed to be ran. Like I, I gave First Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1. Uh, if you go in and you look in the book of Acts at how the early church was set up with the way elders and deacons were assigned, th this is all key in good church structure. These are passages that need to be studied and gone over for if churches are going to be a good biblical, have a good biblical leadership model, they need to be following in this. All right, number nine, and that's leadership accountability. Leadership accountability. This kind of falls in line with church discipline, but essentially leaders need to be accountable. Sometimes in some churches, uh, leaders can act like they are in this ivory tower where they cannot be touched. No one can ever question them. No one can ever say anything, but that's ridiculous. Nothing's infallible except for God and his word. But leadership needs to have some type of accountability structure. There was a church that I was a part of down here in Southwest Louisiana where the pastor, while it was an independent church, he still looked towards other pastors and other churches to help keep him accountable. And they would look at the services and they would watch the services and they would tell him like, hey, you know, um, and I'm not saying this actually happened, but he was expecting them. If he ever said anything, did anything that seemed maybe out of line or not in line with scripture, these people were there to tell him, hey, you know, pastor so-and-so, this wasn't exactly lined up biblically. And he could take that with that grain of salt and learn that as growth. This is also goes back to discipleship, like we were talking about but leadership accountability. All right, and number 10, and this is our last one for the day. I know a shorter episode, right? But this is all pretty good self-explanatory stuff in the Bible. Um, and that is looking for the return of Christ. 
Is your church actively looking forward to the return of Christ? Sadly, so many churches can, now I don't know about so many, but a lot of churches, mostly the popular ones that you see all over YouTube and TV and all this stuff, they have no real interest in the return of Jesus Christ. And that's a sad deal because, you know, as Christians, there's so many, ver- look at Apostle Paul. He kept saying to die is to be with Christ, you know, to die is gain, to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. And he really wanted to be with the Lord, but he understood that while he was still here on this earth, he had a mission that God had him on and he had to walk in that mission. Uh, but essentially always looking forward to the return of Christ. That is what a good church should be doing. They don't shy away, especially from eschatology. What is that? That's the study of the end of times. They don't shy away from things like that. I, I went to one church briefly where I asked them, like, you know, how I was there for about a year, I think. And I asked them, I was like, why don't we ever talk about, you know, Book of Revelation, end times, things of that nature. Um, it could have been just the season they're in, but I was curious, so I asked the question. They say, oh, well, we don't pay attention to that. We'd rather pay attention to what we can affect now because that stuff's all going to happen down the line. I'm like, well, if you actually opened up the book of Revelation, it starts with a blessing and it ends with a blessing. Uh, so it's really important to talk about these types of topics. But looking forward to the return of Christ. So that was number 10. Now, I understand there are many things that I probably missed or I just didn't talk about. If you have any suggestions, by any means, go ahead, hit us up. You can contact us through email at ibnwpodcast at gmail.com. That is ibnwpodcast at gmail.com. That's pretty much the acronym of I Believe Now What. (laughs) Or you can hit us up on Facebook. We do now have a Facebook page. Uh, It's been up for a while, and now Facebook actually has the ability to let you listen to the podcasts directly through Facebook, which is pretty cool. So if anybody's out there uh, that knows someone that struggles with how to listen to a podcast, Facebook, most people have one, you can go ahead and listen to on Facebook as well. So if you have any questions, comments, concerns, hit us up on those social media platforms. As we said, email, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We got one on all those. Uh, Let us know. Let's see how you're doing. And uh, if there's any topics that you want us to bring up, or maybe even you want to be on the show and get interviewed, give your testimony, whatever the case may be, hit me up, let me know, and we will figure out how to do that. But anyways, this is a short episode. Next week, we're coming back. Uh, I'm actually preparing an episode for next week, going to break away a little bit from the how to find a good church type series that we've been doing here and go over, uh, in, go over a topic that I have not, I've, I've tried to talk about it on this episode before, and then I've ended up deleting the episode because I didn't want to trip anyone up. But essentially I was recently, and I said this at the end of the last episode, I was recently invited to a podcast, uh, from my good buddy, Jonathan Lunsford. He, he has a podcast called under the cloud podcast and he invited me on to talk about the topic of the gift of tongues. Now me, personally, I am a, what you would call an open but cautious cessationist. Um, I do not believe that the spiritual gifts are in full force like they would be in the book of Acts, and I am not entirely sure if the spiritual gifts uh, still operate in that manner. I'm not ever going to put, I hate to use this phrase, but I'm never going to put God in a box and say that he can't do anything because he's God. He could do whatever he wants to do. But essentially, uh, he wanted to have an opposing view because it was three people who believed in speaking in tongues and he didn't want it to turn into a giant echo chamber. So he asked me to come on 
And it was it was a beautiful thing, actually, because there was no arguing. We weren't debating of whether or not it was true. We're just simply gathering different points of view, and we discussed it, and we talked about it. So I thought it would be good if I went ahead and made an episode, essentially, on what I believe speaking in tongues is and how that applies to today, if it even applies to today. So that's what we're going to talk about next week. Um, But anyways, y'all have a wonderful week, and I will talk to y'all later.